Welcome to Airtime, a podcast by Elevate Aviation, exploring all things aviation with a focus on the people inside the industry and their careers. Here is your host and podcast producer, Kendra Kincaid. Hi to everyone who is coming on right now. Um, Really appreciate everyone that's here and and that's joining us and uh, we're going to we're going to get started. So welcome. Welcome, everybody. And whether you're watching on Zoom or whether you're watching on Facebook, I want to say hello and welcome. Uh, you may notice, if you've been watching, that my background looks a little bit different this week. Um, COVID-19 has affected us all in different ways. And for me, um, two of my children have moved back in. And so that means that uh, my office is no longer my office. It's now a bedroom. So I'm out in a little nook in my home. Um, So that's a little different for me. So we'll see how this goes. Strict instructions for everyone to stay in their rooms until I'm done. (laughs) So anyway, welcome to Airtime brought to you by Elevate Aviation. This series of the webinar is designed to explore the people inside the aviation industry who we think will inspire you and um, bring you something that you can take back into your own life and help you create a life you love. That's what we want for everyone. And today's guest is, is, if this man does not give you inspiration, we quit. We just quit. Um, at Elevate Aviation, we also have many mentors who can help you on your path in aviation. And like always, I want to encourage you to email us and sign up to either become a mentor with us if you're in aviation and you want to do that, or to get a mentor. Uh, and visit us at elevateaviation.ca to learn more. I truly believe in the power of mentorship. And if you're out there doing it alone, you don't have to. There are people who actually want to help you on your path in aviation. So I hope you are all having a wonderful morning so far. I hope you can grab a coffee, tea in my case, uh, sit back, relax, as we speak to former astronaut and current film star, John Harrington. Um, I didn't write too many questions myself today because I just figured we're just going to have a conversation. And for any of you who are watching, I figure there's going to be some questions today. So throw out your questions. Don't be shy with your questions. We'll try to get to as many as we can. So who is John Harrington? Well, I was in Winnipeg last year at a conference and uh, I didn't really want to go because I had just been in Mexico where it was like plus 30 and Winnipeg happened to be minus 30 and I went straight from one to the other and and, uh, I was not all that excited. But then, and I don't know, John, if you remember, but somebody introduced me to this man and said, I would like you to meet astronaut John Harrington. And in my head, I was sort of thinking, not, I, I really try not to judge people. I really, really try not to judge people. I, I'm proud that I don't, but I, did, I do remember sort of thinking, oh, this is nice. You know, we'll have a little handshake and off he goes. Um, but that's not what happened. We actually ended up talking and uh, we had a great time. And um, it was a wonderful conversation. And so uh, we've, we've sort of stayed in touch ever since. So I'm just so, so grateful that he offered to come here. Um, well, I asked him and begged him. <laughs> no, there was no, there was no begging involved. So I want to tell you a little bit about him. Uh, John Harrington is a retired, uh, I'm talking about him like he's not like right here. <laughs> um, John Harrington is yeah, um, a retired United States Naval aviator and former NASA astronaut. 
In 2002, Har Harrington, I'm reading from your bio, <laughs> Harrington <laughs> became the first enrolled member of a Native American tribe to fly in space. Very impressive. Selected by NASA in April 1996, he reported to the Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center in August of 19, and, and he reported to the Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center in August 1996. He completed two years of training and evaluation, qualified for flight assignment as a mission specialist. He was assigned to the flight support branch of the astronaut office, where he served as a member of the astronaut support personnel team responsible for shuttle launch preparations and post-landing operations. That sounds like a responsibility. I don't want to take on. I get to uh, see people in the cockpit and close the hatch and walk and run away about three miles and watch them fly. So that's <laughs> the best job I've ever had. That sounds, that sounds good. Um, so uh, John was selected as a mission specialist for the STS-113. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is. The 16th space, space shuttle. Yep. Space transportation system, STS. Perfect. Okay, thank you. Um, so it was the 16th space shuttle mission to the International Space Station. Endeavour was launched from the Kennedy Space Center on November 23rd, 2002, to deliver the P1 truss segment, which provides structural support for the space station radiators. We're gonna find out all about this later. Um, but during his mission, he performed three spacewalks, totaling 19 hours and 55 minutes. Um, in 2004, he served as a commander on NEMO-6 mission aboard the Aquarius Underwater Laboratory. We're going to find out a little bit more about that. He lived and worked underwater for 10 days. That would be very scary for a lot of people. Um, retiring from the Navy and NASA in 2005, and John Harrington was inducted into the Chickasaw Hall of Fame in 2002. In 2017, he was inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. And in 2018, he became one of the inductees in the first induction ceremony held by the National Native American Hall of Fame. Okay, this is a shortened version. I just picked out a couple things from the many, many things that you can read about this wonderful man. Um, so without further delay, let's, let's say hi. Hi, again, thank you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's fun to be back in Canada virtually. You know, I need to come back when all this dies down and come back up. Canada for a uh, wonderful vacation. Meet a lot of nice people. Yes, and you fly, of course. So, yep. are you going to fly up? Yeah, you know, my mall. My I have a small M4, a mall. It's a little tail dragger. If you ever seen the movie Cannonball Run, it's you know back in the back in the day. This guy landed this little airplane in a street, and Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise were in the plane, and and that's the kind of plane I fly. So I don't land on streets. Um, I land off runway a lot of times and stuff. So yeah, I can fly across the border when they let me. Okay, that's good. I like this. I like this. We've been talking about this for a while. So you're going to have to like fly up and go to Banff or something. Well, I'll lunch there. Gorgeous. Been to Banff. I went to Banff on my birthday. It was absolutely gorgeous. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. It is. It is gorgeous there. It's um, I was going to go climbing a mountain uh, two days ago, but it was snowing on the top of the mountain. So I was like, <laughs> never mind. Never mind. Not yet. Not yet. So, okay. I want to get into this, and so we talked about this just a little bit before we went live, and uh, okay, I have to know the story, so you love rock climbing. Um, I saw a little video of that, I posted it on my Facebook today if anyone wants to see it, or you can just Google, um, but so you love rock climbing, but, but your love of rock climbing actually interfered with your schooling. 
So can tell us about it because I, th this is just so fascinating to me. Well, I graduated from high school in 1976 long ago and I was living in Texas and my mom and dad had actually moved back to Colorado where I primarily grew up in Colorado and Wyoming. Um, but after I graduated, I, I went back to Colorado. My parents were, and I went to work in a restaurant and, uh, I just love being outdoors. I mean, I grew up in Colorado with my parents. We would go up in the mountains, jeeping and rock hunting and things. And, and so uh, when I came back, I was like, here's this big playground. Here's this big playground, these beautiful rocks. So outside of Colorado Springs, there's a place called the Garden of the Gods and these big uh, red sandstone formations. And they're just, they just, they just beckon you to come climb them. You know, we're not supposed to climb them, you know, climb, scramble up because a lot of folks scramble up and fall off and get hurt. So um, I started school in, in the fall of 76, the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, a little extension to the University of Colorado. And uh, <clears throat> it was just me. I didn't know all my friends that I'd had in, in grade school and such, and none of them had gone to college. And the folks that I knew in the Springs uh, that I'd grown up with, they weren't in college. So when I went there, it just it was me. And I didn't know anybody. And it was just, I was a really shy person. And and I had a really hard time getting into the motivation of being in school. My parents told me to go to school because they knew if I wanted to improve my chances for success, I needed, a, I needed to do something after high school. And so this idea was, I like the outdoors. Um, I, well, let's be a forest ranger. You know, let's go out and let's, let's work in the mountains. And so as part of that, I would go out and I would take my books out to this place called Garden of the Gods. And uh, one day I was out there, I, I honestly, I, honestly, I had my books with me and I was on this one rock. And these two guys were climbing. So I thought I'd watch them and study a little bit. No, I didn't study. Um, and one of the guys looked down and said, hey, do you want to learn how to climb? And his name was Scott Woods, Steve Knutson and Scott Woods. And, uh, and I said, yeah, I'd love to. So the next thing I know, I was tied onto a rope and they were showing me how to do this rock climbing thing. And I just, it was, that was it. It was one of these things that, you know, it was challenging. It was kind of scary. It was physically demanding. And, and when, you, when you achieved the goal, you felt really, really good. I mean, to get this endorphin rush, you know, doing the whole thing. And so that's where my focus went. I was still in school, but I just didn't pay attention to school that much. And so in that year, I didn't, I had like uh, three D's, I think. I had a D in Western civilization. I had a couple of D's in biology and, and just, I didn't, I wasn't there. And so I got a really interesting letter from the University of Colorado said, thank you, but no, thank you. Bye-bye. In, uh, in the spring of 77. And so I thought, okay, well, let's figure out what I want to do. And uh, I went, I stayed to work in that restaurant. They sent me to Texas for a few months and uh, working in Fort Worth, Texas in a restaurant. I'd go to work at two in the afternoon, work till like midnight, you know, play poker and drink until like three in the morning and then go back to sleep and do this thing. And I got into this, like I, said, I hated it. I mean, I absolutely hated this routine. And, and, uh, and so I called a friend of mine who I used to, who I knew in Colorado. And I said, you know, uh, hey, how are you? And he goes, well, I've been looking for you. And I said, well, okay, you know, what for? And he said, well, I have a job. Uh, we need rock climbers to work on a highway in Colorado. And so I said, really? And I called my dad and I said, hey, I got this really neat job offer in Colorado to, uh, to you know, as a rock climber. And he goes, that's great. Don't quit. And he wanted me to stay doing what I was doing. And, uh, and I, I said, I was on a Thursday. I quit on Friday. And uh, hopped in my Volkswagen Carmen Ghia and I drove to Colorado and I started work in Glenwood Canyon on Interstate 70 in the heart of Colorado in the fall of 1977. And I loved it. I, I worked on the survey crew and our job was to, if you can imagine looking at a canyon and you got to go from one side of the canyon to the other and you want to measure, we're going to build a highway 
uh, a four-lane highway in a, in a very beautiful canyon. And the idea was they wanted to measure the amount of cross-section so they could take out as little rock as possible to build this highway. So they needed people to hang off the side of the cliffs. And it wasn't really rock climbing. It was more like it was repelling, essentially. But I'd hang off the side of the cliff, and I would hold a piece of glass. You can imagine, you know, like my smoothie right here. You can't see it. There's my smoothie. Um, I'd hold this smoothie, this thing against the rock, and these guys on the ground would shoot an infrared beam of light to the prism I held in my hand. And um, how does that work? Well, light travels at a constant velocity. And if you know the time it took to go from one point to there and back again, you, know, you can determine how far that distance is. And if you know the angle of that beam of light, then you can determine X and Y, so sine, cosine. I was learning, I was learning trigonometry really for the first time in my life, not in a textbook, but you know, working with people who are getting paid to do it. And I got paid to do it. And I was really fortunate, and you talked about mentors, exactly what happened. I, the guy that owned the company, uh, a guy named John Haley, uh, sat me down one day. This is the part we started talking about uh, early on, but we didn't get to it yet. I was sitting there grommeting this big, huge sheet. Uh, we were going to drag a sheet across the Colorado River to show these um, uh, environmentalists, and John Denver was one of them, um, where the edge of this highway was going to go. And so my job was to put these little metal grommets in this sheet. It was going to go on a cable and stretch all the way across. And while I'm doing this, I'm, I'm you know, pounding each one of these things in. This older guy comes in, had a gin and tonic, and he had a big cigar. And he sat down with me and he said, uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. his name was John Haley. He said, uh, you know, what are you going to do when you, when you grow up? I was 19, man. I was, I was growing up. I got to ski on weekends. I had a truck I could drive. And he goes, well, you know, you can't make a living on $4 an hour. You know, you can't do this the rest of your life. Why don't you go back to school and be the engineer, be the guy that's responsible for the entire thing. Don't be that person at the lowest rung of the ladder. Um, you can't raise a family on four bucks an hour. You, know, you can't, you, know, you can't. So go back to school, become the engineer. And so now I have this kind of this motivation that I did not have the first year. And I had this, I had now this knowledge of, well, you know, there's, a, there's an application here. You know, this mathematics is not just in textbook. Mathematics is in our everyday lives. And how do you apply that? So this idea of taking the theoretical and the practical and putting them together uh, came together for me in the fall of, geez, I worked for the guy for a year in the following summer. Um, I well, actually reapplied to university. They actually let me back in. And so I started back to school in the fall of 78 and uh, with a, with a focus on being an engineer. Yeah. That's how wow. I got back. Long story. Don't you wish that everyone could have that realization that, you know, that, and that passion to go back in school and do well in school instead of just floating through school? You know, as I think it goes back to the idea of what motivates you, you know, what motivates a person to want to learn. And the idea is if you can connect something to your, to the world that you occupy, um, then you have more of an interest in it. And there was an educator named John. Um, oh boy, this is uh, going back in here. Um, gosh darn it. Um, escapes me right quick. Getting older. Um, that, that back in the thirties was the one that said, um, you know, Hey, here's this idea of get, getting folks motivated to learn by doing things that are close to their heart. And, and that's exactly how I learned. Now you go fast forward, you know, 70 some odd years and that is still applicable. It's just applicable now as it was back then. And so how do you get kids interested to want to learn math and science by showing the fun, showing them the fun, showing them something that they can identify with. And that's when I went to earn my PhD in my fifties. And that was a focus of my research was looking at what's that, what's that interest that sparks, which is what you do 
with this program and Elevate Aviation. This is great. Thank you. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, okay, so then take us on the journey, uh, and there's some questions here, and I'll get to them, I promise. Um, but take us on the journey of, so how you went from there to that that man in the picture behind you. <laughs> so for those of you watching, that's, Wave John. Yeah, that's yeah. John. John's always looking over my shoulder. Um, <laughs> Well, that's it. You, know, I got, you get back into college and you, you got you to do the calculus. You have to do the, the, um, the statics and dynamics. You have to do all those things to become an engineer. And the nice thing was I had a circle of friends. And now I had a, a group of friends I did not have in my first year. And so now it was a collective, you know, misery loves company. It really does. And, and passing tests and passing homework helps when you can study with somebody else. And so if I didn't know it, somebody else did. And so we would work together. And got to the point, by the time I was a senior in college, I worked for the uh, math department. I, was a, I graded papers for a lady named Nancy Baggs. Nancy Baggs was an incredible mathematics instructor at the university. And uh, so I was her grader. And then sometimes I got to tutor her classes. You know, sometimes I, you know, she couldn't go, so I would, I would sit in and, and tutor these classes. Well, I came to know the head of the math department really well, and uh, Dr. Jim Modier. And Jim came to me one day and said, John, I have a student for you. I need, a, I need a calculus tutor. And I said, okay, well, I figured, you know, kid my age, right? He goes, no, this guy's, uh, he's in his 60s. He's a retired Navy captain. He flew uh, Dauntless Dive Bombers in World War II. And he wants to get a computer science degree. And he just needs some help with calculus. And I said, all for it. So I met this gentleman named uh, Captain Richard Knockle. And he was just this wonderful gentleman that told me these incredible stories about his career, you know, flying airplanes off of carriers in World War II and a helicopter pilot. Just a really nice guy. And so as I tutored him calculus, he tutored me about the Navy. And with these two guys on both sides, one, both have been in the Navy, said, well, John, you know, why don't you uh, go see that movie, Officer and a Gentleman? You know, so if you want to join the Navy, that's what you're going to have to do. And so I went, saw the movie, and I thought, yeah, you know, Buffy St. Marie, she actually sang the Academy Award winning, no, she wrote the Academy Award winning song for that movie, um, An Officer and a Gentleman. And so I applied and uh, raised my right hand and in January of, geez, 83, and I joined the Navy in November of 83. So that's how I got into the Navy. And then on to there, to that guy yeah, back the, there. <laughs> that's, that's, a whole, that's a whole nother story. Yeah, like this is not Navy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so how long were you in the Navy? I was in the Navy 22 years. Um, oh, I, spent, 20. yeah, I spent about 13 of it uh, in the fleet. Um, I was four years. I flew uh, P-3 Orions, 100 subs, for about four years. I uh, used to fly uh, Station in Moffett Field, California. I did two deployments to Adak, Alaska in the winter. That was fun. Then I did one deployment to the Philippines, uh, QB Point in the Philippines during the monsoons. That was fun. Wow. I learned to fly in bad weather. Uh, but I learned the idea of responsibility and the idea that, you know, flying with a group of people where you're responsible for their safety, you know, you get to know your stuff really well. And there's a feeling of satisfaction that comes from doing something it's challenging being at rock climbing, being at schoolwork, being at flying an airplane in bad weather. And to be able, and I'd land in these really bad storms in, in Alaska and I'd roll out and snow on a runway and winds and, and people come up and pat me on the back and, you know, say, hey, good job, Mr. Harrington. They didn't realize your feet were shaking on the rudder pedals. <laughs> wow. You know, you, could, you work so hard, but uh, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you're capable of doing something. So then one day you just woke up and said, I want to go to space. <laughs> well, that started when I was an eight. That started when I was eight years old. I used to sit in a cardboard box and dream I was going to the moon back in the '60s because 
that's what we did. And my brother and a guy named Lynn Miller and myself had this big refrigerator box at Lynn's house. And we would climb in it and pretend we were Apollo astronauts. We'd sit three abreast. And, you know, I dreamed about doing it, but I never thought of something I could accomplish. That wasn't, you know, those guys on TV, you know, that they, they weren't me. And, and I just, it wasn't until much later, you know, when I was in the Navy, I realized if, if I wanted to achieve the dream I had as a kid, that uh, you need to be a test pilot and need to get an advanced degree and you need to be competitive. So um, I applied to test pilot school uh, yeah, when I was in the Navy. Most of my colleagues went to work for the airlines. Um, I applied couple, uh, twice. And the second time I, when I was selected, wow. And uh, went and did that for uh, a year. Probably the toughest school I've ever been in was the United States Naval Test Pilot School. That's the best test pilot school too. And uh, Air Force guys will argue. The, uh, uh, but I realized that all the, all the plaques, they have plaques of all the graduates that had gone before you. And so as you're walking out to the plane, you can see these plaques and I would stop and you'd see names like, names like Alan Shepard, you know, first American in space, uh, Jim Lovell, Apollo 13, John Young, um, you know, Captain John Young, who actually hired me, which is pretty cool. Um, these are the people that went before me. So if they can do it, why not? You, I have the requisite skill set. You know, if you don't apply, you won't be an astronaut. And so I applied a couple times, uh, got a master's degree to be competitive and uh, applied again. And uh, lo and behold, I got interviewed and I went down and told the story I'm telling you to about 15 different people that uh, sat around the table and asked me questions about everything from, uh, well, tell us what you've done since you're in high school. That's the question they ask you. So you can rattle off the story and they stop you and ask you questions like, why'd you do that? You know, uh, are parts hard to get for your Volkswagen? Oh, yeah. And, well, you know, do you change the gains on a common filter when you change accelerations and velocities? So, I mean, it, it ran the gamut. But it was a chance to tell my story. And I, I guess it worked. <laughs> so, wow. What did it feel like? Like when you, you know, were accepted, did you, did you think this is it? Like, oh, it was I, a fabulous, I, fabulous phone call. Fabulous phone call. The story behind that phone call is I was working in a program in Washington, D.C., a place called Crystal City. And uh, it was a secure facility. And uh, my phone, my phone had, had three messages on it when I came to work that morning. And one was from a friend of mine who I flew with that said, hey, they're going to announce who's, who's being selected today. I'm like, how'd you find out? You know? and, and the next call was from a guy named Dave Leitzma. And Dave was the head of flight crew operations at NASA. And I was told, and all of us in my class that interviewed were told, um, if you're selected, one of two people will call you. John Young or George Abbey. John Young, you know, twice in every vehicle except Mercury. Uh, George Abbey was the head of the Johnson Space Center. So if either of those two guys call you, you're in. Anybody else calls you, you're toast. So I get this phone call from Dave Leitzma, and I, I didn't know who Dave was. And uh, so that, uh, I, I felt, I, I wanted to get it, but I, I didn't think I would, but when you know you're not getting it, you go, Burr. So the second message was from Dave again. And Dave says, John, I really need you to call me. And I said, okay. So a friend of mine was sitting next to me and I called, I called him. I, I was sitting there and I said, Hey Dave, this is John Harrington. He goes, well, how are you doing this morning, John? I said, not too good. <laughs> so I didn't think I'd been selected. And he goes, well, maybe we'll make you feel better. How'd you like to come to work for us? Wow. I, I, I mean, I stood up, I honestly got stood up out of my chair at attention and I said, it'd be an honor. It would be an honor to work for NASA and serve my country. And my friend looked at me, he goes, and I went, and he takes off out of the office. And the next words out of Dave's mouth says, 
So John, I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't tell anybody, you know, um, you know, we need to do a press release. And I thought, oh boy, hired and fired in the same phone call. <laughs> wow. That was fabulous feeling, fabulous feeling. Did you realize at the time that you would be making history? No, no, I did not. It did that. So that like, that wasn't part of any of your thinking and that, that was just a, an amazing no, I, bonus. I thought when I got down there, uh, one of the ladies from uh, uh, Equal Opportunity Office, uh, Estella Gillette was her name. I remember all these names. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, and she said, hey, John, you know, you're, you belong to the Chickasaw Nation, Oklahoma, a citizen, right? And I said, yes, ma'am. She goes, well, we have a bunch of kids from the uh, Alabama Cushata Reservation are coming down, Tiny Tots, dance, you know, would you like to meet them? I said, yeah, I'd love to meet them. And then I, and I found that, you know, I'm meeting these folks and I realized that I was in a unique position that I'd never been in before, that no one had been in before. And I had an opportunity to kind of share my background, uh, you know, how I grew up and the challenges I had. And honestly, you know, didn't grow up in a traditional cultural environment. I moved around a lot, but I've always been proud of, of where, I, where I've come from and, and what my heritage is. But now I had a chance to share my story with others. And uh, probably the very first speaking engagements I gave was to 3,000 uh, students, Native American students, with the American Indian Science and Engineering Society in the George R. Brown Convention Center in Houston, Texas. And I tell you, that was the most intimidating thing I think I've ever done in my life. <laughs> 3,000 people and, and tell stories. Never had, never done that before. Wow. Well, I and, know that you go around and, and you speak now and, and you're a motivational speaker and we'll get into that but I have to ask a couple more questions here so um, I'm gonna go with one um, that kind of goes with Captain McKee, McKee's question he says the spacewalk must have been wonderful can the training prepare you for the actual wow factor but before you even answer that like start with what it was like like that moment when you're you're sitting waiting the countdown's on, you're about to go into space. Like, are you, re, any regrets at that moment? Oh, like, no, like, no. what am I doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm actually going to space. Remember, I remember you're on your back for about two and a half to three hours. You're laying, you're laying in the seat and a lot of stuff's going on around you and the radios. But we were playing word games, you know, the crew, we were, you know, a game called Think It, Link It, one of the guys came up with and one of the guys fell asleep. You could hear him snoring on the ICS. Um, <laughs> But inside of nine minutes, the T minus nine is when stuff really starts to happen. And so you really get focused. And it was at about 30 seconds before uh, engine, engine ignition, I thought, I'm really going to go to space. I'm really, no kidding, actually going to go. And before then, it was just sit, you know, and, and I'd been in that position before with other folks that had flown. And so the excitement of it was, I'm actually going to go. And, uh, and then the engine's light and the solids kick in and, you know, you're uh, – a good swift kick in the pants. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> so no fear. Yeah, I think you know, all of us realize that something can go wrong, but I think their training makes it to the point where in any, any uh, skill in aviation is that, you know, know your systems as well as you can, because you have to solve problems when the systems fail. And it's not just knowing which switch to throw. It's knowing why you're throwing that switch. It's knowing what powers that switch. It's knowing, the details behind it. You know, it's not just rote memorization. It's a matter of understanding why you do it. And they give you so many malfunctions. You, know, you can't simulate the excitement of launch. You can simulate the stress of launch by giving you so many malfunctions that you're totally focused on solving, solving these problems. So as a flight crew, that's what we did. I was a flight engineer. I sat between the pilot and the commander 
and uh, the PLT, the, the CDR and the PLT, as we say. And my job is to help them work the checklist and to do uh, board boundaries and things as we're, we're going uphill. So you're, so you're so focused on it, you can't sit there and let the fear of the fact that there's about 500,000 gallons of stuff on the other side of the wall that's highly explosive that could ruin your day pretty quickly. Uh, you, just, you can't focus on that because if you focus on it, you can't do your job. You know, you can't. So on the ground, when you're watching this on TV, there's a moment when everyone cheers, they're all excited it launched. Is there a moment inside like that, that you cheer, like we got, we got here? Or? Well, one of the things my commander said, he said, I don't want anybody whooping and hollering on <laughs> I don't want you to go, just do your job. I want you to be focused on doing your job. And Jim Weatherby was my commander, great guy. Very, very focused. This is six flight in space and uh, five times as a commander. So Jim, Jim knew his stuff. And, and so the idea is, you know, be professional, do your job. And then when you get it done and you've, you've done all, you achieved all the things you're supposed to achieve, then you can have fun. And that's exactly how we did the mission. I mean, it wasn't, to me, it wasn't, yeehaw, wee, you know. It was all here, Yay! You know, but you know, you do your job, and that's the important part. Wow. Okay. So, so I'm gonna go back to uh, Captain McKee's question. So, the sure. spacewalk must have been wonderful. Can the training prepare you for the wow factor? And what was it like? Like, like, can you walk us through what that felt like? Sure. Uh, the training is done in a pool in, in Houston, Texas, called the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. About 200 feet long, 100 feet wide, about 40 feet deep. And they actually have full-size structure of the space station in the water in different, different, different elements. And so you learn the process of doing your procedures. You learn how to go from, you know, from exiting the airlock, you know, to getting out, uh, translating down the truss, where the, um, where your different uh, tasks are going to be. And you practice all those. Well, you got a camera right in front of you with a safety diver. You got a safety diver, you got a camera here, you got two safety divers, you got all these people, incredible choreography you know, helping you through this process. You know how to handle the tools. But, you know, when somebody hands you a real power pistol grip tool, you know, a, a powered ratchet, you know, they hand it to you, you're in the water, you're neutrally buoyant, also you got two or three pounds in this hand, you start doing this. Right. Doesn't happen in space. You got a three pound wrench, it's not three pounds, it weighs nothing. And so you have to deal with that, that challenge now of having something heavy in your hand and it gets really tiring. You spend about six hours roughly six hours in the pool on a, on a dive and you are spent. I mean, you're really spent in space. You don't have a safety diver. You don't have a camera in front of you. There's nobody around you except the other person and, uh, and you're on your own. And so, you know, you're not in the pool, you work against the water because um, you, you have to float, be neutrally buoyant. So you get that sensation of being weightless, but you're not, you weigh something in the suit. Um, and so uh, in space, you weigh nothing. Zip. And now the water's not working against you. So in the water, it's hard to start and it's easy to stop. In space, it's easy to start and it's hard to stop. And so the idea is to go slower. You know, slower is faster. Um, don't get out of control. Don't, you know, watch where the tether is. Watch, you know, where you're, you're following this crack, essentially. It's rock climbing. It's rock climbing 220 miles above the earth uh, on a, on a man-made structure, you know, a human-made structure. So, who knew when you were rock climbing that, that this would be your future and you would ever refer back to it? You know, it's mind blowing. Yeah, it is. It's, it's essentially the same type of thought process. It's knowing where your hands go. It's knowing where your rope is. It's knowing where your protection is. It's knowing, you know, how to get from point A to point B without getting tangled up in it. Um, the neat thing is you're falling, but you're not hitting anything. You know, you're, you're falling around the earth 
you know, you're, you're traveling around there with every 90 minutes and, and you're in this constant free fall. You, you're just falling with everything else. And uh, that's just an incredible sensation, absolutely incredible sensation. That's yeah. oh, so amazing. Okay, I have to get to a couple questions here. Um, here's a question from Trevor. How do you spend the night before liftoff and what thoughts go through your mind, especially regarding safety? I, I think just, um, you know, up to that point in time, you've been so busy and you're still, I mean, we were learning things at the very, you know, to the day before launch, we were actually having to do different procedures for different things they came up with. And you're so focused. I, I remember I slept pretty well um, the night before I flew. Um, you know, my, not, my launch was at night. So I, st I essentially slept into the daytime. And you get up, crew quarters, you have breakfast, um, fabulous place to, to, uh, to be before launch. And then you get suited up. Um, you play, uh, you play, watch the commander play a card game and he has to lose before he can uh, go. And um, let's see, what is this? What else do we do? I forgot the name of the game. Anyway, uh, you walk out and you ride out to the, to the vehicle in a, in a, um, we call it the Astro van. So I slept, I slept pretty well, ate well. Wow. Okay. Here's another one. Uh, this is from Brian uh, Ewinson. I'm probably not saying that right. Um, good to see you. Hey, Brian. Tell Brian hi. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're friends on Facebook. Okay. Um, did I get his name anywhere right? I don't know. Um, okay. Can you discuss your path post-NASA to your degree in education and the value of lifelong learning? Sure. Um, like I say, retired retired in 2005. I was, uh, I did the NEMO mission before I, before I retired, but also was assigned to a space station mission. I was going to fly with two Russians, uh, Oleg Kotev and Fyodor Yurchikin. And I was a commander and a backup to a, a Russian named Pavel Vinogradov, about expedition 14, I think. But I had, I was diagnosed with osteoporosis. Um, and I was in Russia at the time and uh, I got disqualified from long duration flight. And I came back and made a really tough decision to leave NASA knowing I could never fly in a space station, but I could find a shuttle again, but we weren't flying a shuttle. So I got enticed away uh, to work for a commercial space company called Rocket Plane. And the idea was to fly uh, paying passengers in space, maybe fly twice a week instead of, you know, once every four years. And then uh, uh, we, we bought a company called Kistler Aerospace. And we competed for a thing called the Commercial Orbital Transportation Services Agreement. Well, the other company that won that agreement, because we won it, the other company's called SpaceX. SpaceX won that same agreement. Uh, yeah, okay, well, you remember Rocket Plane Kistler? You ever heard of Rocket Plane Kistler? Heard of SpaceX, right? SpaceX, yes. Yeah, SpaceX. Well, you know, Elon Musk was a billionaire, and, uh, and we were owned by a millionaire. The challenge for us was, was getting $400 million. We could not raise the $400 million that NASA required for us to match the money they gave us. And we had a very unique architecture that was actually designed by a guy named George Miller. George Miller designed the Saturn V. You know, so we had a really remarkable architecture that I thought you know, would have done well if we'd had the money to uh, pull it off, but uh, we didn't. Um, I made a, a decision to leave the office, leave Rocket Plane in 2007. Uh, went to work for my tribe. Uh, Governor Anatubby hired me to work for the tribe, did some flying for the tribe. I still work for Chickasaw Nation as well. And uh, um, in 2008, I, I had this crazy idea to ride a bike across the country and to go from Cape Flattery, Washington to Cape Canaveral, Florida. And I talked to my, my tribe, uh, the governor, about sponsoring me to help. You know, the idea was not just to pedal across the country. It was to stop and talk to kids along the way. And uh, Indian reservations and NASA explorer schools. In some places, they had both. And the idea was to share my story 
uh, with students, you know, that recognize there's something you want to do. It takes a lot of work and, and dedication and mentors. And so I, I did, that. I rode a bike 4,300 miles across the country. Um, and uh, that, that ride one fundamentally changed my life. Um, I pedaled into a town called Lewiston, Idaho in August of 2008. And uh, the woman that was my host took me around to the Nez Perce Reservation and up to the University of Idaho. And I met a guy in Idaho, a professor, that said, if you're interested in a PhD, you know, come back and talk to me. And his name was Ed Galindo. Ed's a Yaqui Indian, wonderful guy, just the nicest, nicest man. Well, that's nice, but I don't live in Idaho. <laughs> you know, so um, the woman that was my host, um, I proposed to at the end of the bike ride and got married and uh, left Oklahoma and moved to Idaho and went to school, called Ed and said, hey, I'm here. And I, I went back and worked with Ed and another professor on um, uh, NASA summer program. And I had a group of students in the southern, um, southern Idaho on the Duck Valley Reservation. And I measured their interest in math and science following a NASA summer program. And it was, you know, the factors that motivate and engage kids to learn math and science. And so I did that, graduated in 2014. And uh, uh, we wrote a, a children's book. Um, and then, uh, fortunately, my wife uh, passed away in, in 2018 from cancer. And, uh, and kind of really fundamentally changed what, you know, she always said, you know, do what you keep doing this. You know, she was about education and she was a professor in English and a journalist and an author and such. And so, uh, and you know, I just, you know, keep doing those type of things. And so uh, that's kind of, you know, I left Idaho last year, moved to Montana. Uh, didn't want to stay there. Just, uh, you know, tough story. I'm sorry. That's sorry funny. about that. She was yeah. absolutely beautiful from the pictures that I saw. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, okay, uh, Melissa Haney has a question for you. Melissa Haney is a friend of mine. She's the first Inuk female to uh, captain an aircraft. Yeah, and I, you had you had her on recently. Too. Yeah, cool. yeah. So she has a question for you now. Her right. question says, uh, "Do you know any indigenous programs that support indigenous youth in the U.S. to get them involved in STEM or aviation?" Sure. Uh, great question. Uh, my my tribe, uh, Chickasaw Nation in Oklahoma there's a thing called CNASA. It's the Chickasaw Nation Aviation and Space Academy. And they have a, a program where they get kids involved and they bring in uh, aviators, they bring in planes, they, they teach uh, aeronautics, they get kids involved in hands-on learning with that. So the, the tribe runs a, a, a program for students, which is great. Um, I know of uh, what I'd like to do at some point in time is the idea is that, you know, how do you, how do you get somebody motivated? And the idea is that uh, to me, you know, aviation is a great motivator. It really is. And when you fly a plane, uh, you realize that, you know, hey, this is tough stuff. But when you do it well, that's a real feeling of satisfaction. It's a real feeling that I am capable of doing something, you know, that's tough and challenging. And, um, and that leads to motivation to want to do more. You know, so I, I would like to at some point in time um, be able to take students and measure their motivation. You know, you use a couple of instruments, uh, tests to determine you know, how motivated a student is before and after learning how to fly mm. and self-confidence. And this idea is, am I capable of doing this? Do you have the self-esteem and the self-confidence in yourself to accomplish difficult tasks, be it flying an airplane, sitting in calculus class, you know, um, you know, learning how to, uh, geez, how to build a house, learning how to do plumbing. I mean, the idea is how do you do things and get a feeling of satisfaction from doing something that takes some hard work? And, uh, and that's where I think people get motivated. That's the one program I know of. I don't know of other ones outside of that. That's one I'm familiar with. Um, 
I belong to the American Indian Science Engineering, Engineering Society. I was on the board a couple times, and um, it's a great, a great organization here in, this, in the United States. And we actually have, have groups in Canada now as well that are, that are part of uh, ACES. And the idea is that, you know, get Native students exposed to professionals that are just like them. You know, folks that have become engineers and scientists, you know, and mathematicians, computer scientists, doctors, lawyers, you know, get the idea is get them in a place where they see people just like them that have come from the same backgrounds, have had the same difficulties, you know, and, and uh, hopefully that motivates them to want to accomplish the same thing. And that goes back to the idea of how, who's your mentor? Who's your mentor? Yeah. Do you think, obviously you do think that mentorship is important and I think mentorship is important because I wouldn't be where I was today. So, um, you know, I'm just constantly trying to remind people on these webinars and wherever we go, sign up for a mentor if you want. Like we have people in aviation who want to help other people because as you know, you can go further than you can without one and maybe to places you've never thought of. Sure. sure. Well, it goes back to the, you know, I, I wanted to be a forest ranger. You know, I'd never met a forest ranger. I never sat down and said, what do you have to do? If there's something you love to, if there's something you think you would love to do, go find somebody doing that. Go find somebody that's in that field and say, you know, tell me what you like and dislike about it. Tell me, you know, the goods and the bads, you know, don't just, you know, show me all the shiny stuff. Show me the stuff that's hard, you know, and, and make a decision based on, you know, don't just assume, you know, what, what the answer is, you know, cause mm -hmm. other people do. And you look at all those lines of evidence and how they converge to something that maybe that's what you want to do. And maybe that is something that is, you know, don't spend four years of your life doing something you don't really want to do. You know, why? You know, it's because I want to make a lot of money. Well, you know, you can make a lot of money, but if you don't enjoy getting up every day and going to work, is it really worth it? You know, is it, is that, is that what your, your goal in life is, is to make a lot of money. You know, money doesn't solve everything for sure. Okay. I have to, I have to ask some questions here because they're, they're piling up here. So just gonna shoot off some random questions, okay. not in any particular order. Um, has he written any books? I know you have those on our list. Do you wanna talk about your book for a moment? Uh, a children's book called Mission to Space. Um, the, uh, is published by the Chickasaw Press. A White Dog Press is the, uh, the children's version. Um, my tribe published that, it's great. It's kind of got real pictures of me growing up and you know, shooting rockets and and uh, training as an astronaut. And then in the back, it's got a Chickasaw vocabulary um, that bases on some of the words that are in the book. And uh, I think it's great. I, uh, yeah, I'm supposed to, I'm, yeah, writing my own book. Yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll get through. One day, it'll, it'll get done but, one day. You know, I, I start, it's like, okay, what do I, you know, where's the story end? It hasn't ended yet, you know, and it, it hasn't. I've got an incredible number of things I like to put down. And it's not about making money, it's about telling a story. It's about, you know, letting people know you know, what, what makes you tick and who helped you tick. Mm. Okay. Tick. Next question. Do you ever get jet lag in space? Jet lag in space? You get tired in space. Um, the, uh, we don't go, we don't, you know, if you go to sleep when the sun goes down, you wake up 45 minutes later. Okay. Sun comes up, goes four, 16 times a day. Uh, sun up, sun down, sun up, sun down. So you go to sleep based on when your sleep schedule starts. Um, and your schedule starts from the minute you lift off. It's called mission elapsed time. I have a watch that you start, and that's what the computers are based on. So I, I may have, you know, uh, you work for 16 hours, you sleep for eight. Uh, first night, couldn't sleep. Maybe you got two hours of sleep. Um, I, was, I tried to sleep in the airlock, and I was up against the wall, and it's minus 200 on the other side, and uh, you get kind of cold. You get kind of hot. 
um, anytime you close your eyes, you see these little flashes of light uh, kind of, you know, pop into your, into your, your vision. It was really hard. Then I got really tired. I worked so hard and I got so tired. It was easy, easy, easy to go to sleep. Wow. Okay. I'm going to keep going. Sarah has a question. What are the most valuable, valuable strategies you developed around mental discipline and how did those develop? Mental strategies. Uh, wow. It, it goes back to this idea that, you know, it, it takes a lot of hard work to do something well. And when you, when you put the hard work into it and you do it well, there's a feeling of satisfaction that comes from doing that. There's many times that I didn't study. I didn't study very hard, you know, and you do poorly and you feel bad, you know, and it's not a matter of, you know, not being an intelligent. It's just, you don't have the motivation to do it. Then you realize you put the time and effort into it. Then you do well, you know, yeah, I, I can do this, you know, and the same thing in flying airplanes, same thing being in a sim, you know, it's just, uh, you put the time and effort into it. So the idea is that find something, you know, that you just work hard at it and, uh, and you see the results, the fruits of your labor. Yeah. It's a great way to grow confidence. Yeah. I mean, if you can't, if you're not confident in yourself, you know, how can you do, um, you know, how can you accomplish things you want to accomplish? You know, we fail, we fail at stuff all the time. I fail at stuff all the time, you know, but those things that I really want to accomplish, you know, I put some time and effort. I went for a bike ride yesterday and I got out of the bike and the first thing I see is this, you know, 7% grade hill right in front of me going, ah, and pretty soon you're over the top of the hill and then you pedal a nice flat spot and all of a sudden here's another, maybe 8% grade. You go, oh, you know, and you crank the top of it and you put, put forth the effort and you get to the top, you go, <laughs> it's downhill all the way. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Another question from Brian. Are there any members in your tribe involved with science, technology, or space programs? We have a group. That's a great question. Um, I'm, in the, I'm a judge advisor for what's called FIRST, for Inspiration and Recognition of Science and Technology. It's a uh, program started by the guy that invented the Segway, Dean Kamen, and uh, it's a robotics competition. The tribe has a robotics, comp a robotics team called Metal Mayhem. And so throughout the year, they have mentors that work with the students to build a robot to meet this challenge that's put out every January by first. And they compete in, in a uh, regional in Oklahoma. And I judge that one. I'm the judge advisor for that. But it's a worldwide thing. And they have these, these uh, uh, championships, one in Houston, one in St. Louis, I think. Um, but my tribe gets involved in that in technology. And the governor is really, really good about putting forth the money uh, to be able to give kids the opportunity and, and men mentors as well to help them, you know, learn how to build these robots and how to compete in this environment, um, how to be engineers, you know, and that's, uh, that's one of the things that, um, you know, I've been very proud of the fact that my governor is very supportive of that. Well, speaking of governor, we have success successfully avoided uh, the topic of the uh, United States and where things are right now, but so I'll keep going. I'll ask another question before we get into that, or so we don't get into that. Um, okay, here's another one. What was your proudest moment of your career? And I'll expand to anything, your career or, or personal life or anything. What was your proudest oh, moment? My kids, you know, proudest things having my kids. I got two daughters. One's one's thirty, one's twenty-five. They're, um, um, you know, one is a uh, is actually got a degree in graphic arts. Uh, she also went back and became a programmer. Uh, she programs and uh, she raises, she has two horses, two donkeys, races donkeys. Uh, she's in Colorado. Yeah, she races burros, long story, but she's, she's an incredible artist, very, very talented uh, young lady. Uh, that's Jessica. My youngest daughter, Amanda, uh, is a cosmetologist, owns a salon over here about three hours from me over in um, uh, Newport, Washington. 
very creative, very creative. And, and she stepped out in her early 20s and started her own business. And let me tell you, she's doing really well. I mean, she has two kids. I have two grandkids um, through Amanda. Uh, Connor, uh, I'm sorry, Connor's her husband. Brogan is my grandson. And uh, Kennedy is my granddaughter. I'm going to go get Brogan in a couple of days. So that's my proudest moment in my life. Uh, proudest uh, professional moment was uh, stepping outside the space station and hanging on with a thumb and a forefinger. That was pretty cool. Can imagine what that feels like. Like, like you, you can, there's a movie. I'll tell you that there's a movie. We'll talk about that. Yes. They yes. Some of my spacewalks uh, in this movie, and it's really neat. It's an IMAX movie. We can talk about that too. But go on with questions. Okay, a couple more, and then I do have the, that on my uh, list. I want to make sure we fit in. Uh, okay, which one should I go? How did isolation in space prepare you for our COVID nineteen environment today? A good question, Diane. Yeah, that's good. You know, I was in, I was in space for two weeks. You know, and I, you can do anything for two weeks. And and uh, but what I realized, and the more I thought about this, is that. In the space, in the space station, the space shuttle, you know, that is your environment. That is a place that keeps you alive. All the bad stuff is on the outside. You know, what's out there, you know, can kill you. And so how do you prepare yourself to go outside? Um, and that's the idea is that how do you mitigate the risk that can incur by going out and doing something? So I think in the idea of socially isolating is that, you know, uh, if you're going to go outside, understand what the risk is to yourself, you know, wear a mask, you know, you know, protect others. You know, if you're sick, don't go outside. If you're, it, the idea is that you want to be able to protect yourself and protect those around you. So being socially isolated on the space station was neat because our healthy environment was inside of where we were. And we stepped outside in the spacewalk, we prepared to be in that environment you know, to minimize a chance of, of getting hurt. And, um, you know, I thought that to me was very applicable to what we're doing now, you know, how do you take care of others, not just yourself? You know, it's just not about, it's just not about me. Hmm. It's about the people around you too. See, everyone can tell why I like you, why I just, just <laughs> fell in love with you in Winnipeg. Okay, here's another question from Rick. Uh, hey, John, where did you take your first flying lessons? I was your neighbor at Fort Brown and had no idea that you had started <laughs> flying early on. Rick Moore. Rick Moore. Hey, Rick, how are you? Yeah, we... Yeah, La Fort Brown. I lived. My dad worked for Singer Kerfot over in Matamoros, Mexico, and I moved to I moved to Brownsville, Texas, when I was probably ninth grade, uh, ninth and tenth grade, I think. And well, hey Rick, nice to hear from you. Wow. Um, first flying lesson was my dad. My dad was a instructor pilot. We had a little Aronica Champ, a little tail dragger when I was a little kid, and then he bought a Cessna 150. And, and he sold that when I was about 15. And I said, uh, I, I never earned my pilot's license, unfortunately. I didn't earn that till I was in the Navy. So my dad actually gave my, my first flying lesson. And he would let me fly the airplane. And, and he'd lean over me and, and take pictures out the window while I'm, while I'm flying. So I was comfortable in an airplane. And it makes a, it makes a difference when you first start flying in the Navy because it's a lot of stuff that comes at you really, really quick. I'll be darn. Hey, Rick. Aww. Okay, good. I'm glad I got to him. Yeah, Jesus Perez was another guy. He was a good friend of mine. I met my very first speaking engagement with NASA. And I went to school with Jesus in Brownsville. And he walked up to me and, uh, and in the line, I was signing autographs. And I ran this guy I hadn't seen since I was in high school. So it's, just, it's a very small world we live in. It is a small world. You would know more than any of us. <laughs> um, okay, a couple more. Uh, did you grow plants when you were in space? I didn't. Um, I tried to figure out what I was growing inside of me. Um, I did, you do medical experiments. Uh, you can volunteer for different ones. And so I had to do a medical experiment 
to determine if I had H. pylori growing in my, in my gut. And I have to drink this really nasty solution and eat freeze-dried eggs, had to eat dehydrated eggs, uh, low-fiber meal, and drink the stuff. And then I got really gassy, and I'd have to blow into these little bags and stuff them in my locker uh, so somebody could measure the amount of, if there was any H. pylori in my, in my breath. So I didn't grow plants outside, but I tried to determine if I was growing something inside and, and it came out great. No, no problems there. So probably not the answer you wanted to hear, but I thought it was funny. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Uh, another one. Um, hi, hi, did the fact that you did the test pilot school matter a lot in your career? Oh, total. I mean, absolutely. You know, the idea is, you know, flying a test pilot school is you learn, you, you take the math you learned in college and you apply it to flying in airplanes and you realize you cannot divide by zero. You divide by zero, essentially something's going to resonance. And I've saw videos of, of people driving airplanes at a resonant frequency by pushing a stick back and forth and the plane, you know, breaks apart and kills two people. So you know how to, you, you can take from the ability of not just flying the airplane, but being able to analyze the airplane and the airplane's response to your inputs because you're the guy that knows how to fly, but you're also the engineer. And so now you can take the operational thing and, and explain it to the engineer who's non-operational guy. And so we were that bridge between the people that build it and the people that fly it. And uh, I was told I would never get in a car and look at it the same way for the rest of my life. And that is so true. You get in a car and you wonder, now why'd they put that button there? You know, or why, you know, it doesn't respond the way it should. And, and I'm a good driver, you know, but this is not right. And it's kind of weird. It kind of drives you crazy after a while, but it's very true. Wow. Okay. Uh, oh, we're so running out of time. Here is a question from Zia. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Any advice for future astronauts? I am six years old. Oh, wow. Good for you. Yay. Hi, Zia. It's math and science. So the idea is, you know, find something you like to do. Um, do something that may lead you down that path, but make sure it's something you enjoy doing. Um, I enjoyed math. When I was in second grade, I, I took a, I was in a new math seminar uh, I remember walking into a huge lecture hall at Colorado College uh, and doing new math on the board. Um, but I didn't, I, I earned a mathematics degree uh, after I graduated. So math, you want to be an astronaut, math and science. Uh, learn to fly airplanes, you know, learn to be, put yourself in kind of an environment you're not comfortable in. And uh, you'll, you'll figure out, you'll figure it out. That's good. Six years old. Six years old. Yay. I'm so glad she's watching. Okay. I have to ask another one because uh, this one's from Facebook. Um, Nancy Krauss. Hello, Nancy. What was the most difficult thing to deal with being in space? The most difficult thing to, to deal with being yeah. in space? Was it, what is it? The other people? Like you're up there with all these people? Is that no, any? No? No, no. I got along. The neat thing about flying with my crew is we all enjoyed each other. I mean, we had a That's good awesome. time. And it's neat. You don't want to go to space and be with somebody you don't want to be there with. I think when NASA hires people, they hire people that work well with others. The idea is that, you know, am I going to be able to put up with this person for two weeks or six months or a year or however long? Um, you know, we all have personalities, you know, and it grates on some people's nerves sometimes. Focus on your job, do your job. And then uh, when you're done, you know, you have fun. And we had a three-day vacation coming home because of bad weather in Florida. So we got to answer questions on the internet and got to talk on radios play their food, take photos. Hardest part about that was I would answer internet questions on the flight deck and all my crewmates are downstairs and I would, you know, they're listening to you and you get a question, you answer it and you go, you'll hear this. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Good fun. Good people. Okay. Oh, that sounds like it was so much fun. Okay. Um, 
we are running out of time. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of things. I want to talk about the IMAX movie. Okay. Tell me about that and how much fun was that to make? And oh, Morgan Freeman, did you actually get to meet Morgan Freeman or was that an after I didn't get a chance production? to meet him. No, I love his voice. Right? <laughs> He's got a great voice. He narrates it. Outside of the United States, the movie is called Into Nature's Wild. Inside the United States, it's Into America's Wild. Um, same movie. Uh, Morgan Freeman narrates it, does a beautiful job of capturing it. Uh, McGillivray Freeman Films in Laguna Beach, California. Uh, uh, Greg McGillivray started uh, making movies in the 60s, surfing movies. Um, got a quintessential surfing movies. He was very well known in the surfing community. But he started making IMAX movies in the 70s. Uh, Michael Collins uh, invited him to make a movie for the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum called The Movie to Fly. It's been showing every day the Smithsonian has been open since its inception. Uh, fabulous group of people. We went across the country, myself and a young woman, uh, Nupiak, a Inuit girl named Ariel Tweedo, who was in a, uh, uh, a TV show called Flying Wild Alaska that she, um, she started. And we went across the country filming in some remarkable places. And, and not just the places we went are stunningly beautiful. It's the people we met that are, that are beautiful as well. And so we share some stories of some really neat people. Jennifer Farr Davis, was a, uh, a, she has a record for hiking the uh, uh, Appalachian Trail uh, for any man or woman. She holds that record. We got to meet her in North, in South Carol in North Carolina on the, uh, on the Appalachian, Appalachian Trail. Jeez, um, MFA uh, Rutkin uh, in, in San Antonio as a young woman who's deaf. Uh, she's a beauty pageant uh, uh, queen, and uh, she works with kids to get them hearing aids, and we we filmed a segment with them doing uh, these vests that actually kids can feel the vibrations of the sounds that are around them. When they can't hear them, they can feel them. Um, it was a great experience. I spent two years. I got a call a week after my, about two weeks after my wife passed away uh, and they had no idea she just passed away. And they asked if I'd be interested in doing it. I'll tell you, it, it fundamentally uh, gave me something to focus on and uh, came out in February this year. And uh, you know, you know what happened in February? We I was supposed to be all around the world, hopefully come up to uh, Edmonton. Yes, that's our plan. Plan to see it. But once it, once we start getting back out into the theaters, um, I get a chance to come out and share the story about how we made it and, and uh, answer questions and stuff. So that was, I'm looking forward to that again. Okay, that pretty much brings us to the end. Uh, what we were just talking about there is that, yeah, we are actually hoping that John can come up when, when the movie comes here to Edmonton in the IMAX, that John's going to be able to come up and we can do something um, yeah. to inspire some, some youth or whatever we decide to do with yep. that. So, yep. so we're really going to work on that. I want to say I love biking. I did uh, San Francisco to Santa Monica one time. That was my longest one, which is not, you know, as long as you. So if you want to do maybe a cross Canada bike ride with some aviators or something, I don't know. If you want a project like that, let I, me I, know. I, I've actually talked about doing that, pedaling across Canada. So I'd love to do it. I mean, I did it when I was 50. I can do it when I'm 60. So, well, 62 now. Well, anyway, it's like that. No, I'd love well, to do it. So. Yeah, maybe we could talk about this and we could plan something great. Okay. Sounds I'm great. I'm inviting myself on your bike ride. So we're going to do that. <laughs> Um, okay, I just can't thank you enough for this. This is just so wonderful. And we could keep going on and on. I'm so sorry to everyone that I, that I did not get to your questions. I really apologize. Um, it's just so interesting to um, listen to John speak and um, hear about your adventures and, and how you handle everything. And uh, just you're so inspirational. You really are. And I am glad that our paths have crossed in this lifetime. And uh, 
and stay in touch okay. and maybe maybe we'll Very go much. on a big bike ride sometime yeah, across canada yeah 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 oh i love hills um so um, i want to thank you all for being here if you're watching on facebook thank you so much thank you for joining us here on zoom and uh next week we actually um this is this is kind of crazy but um i really wanted to find a um a black woman who is a pilot and it took a lot of digging and I finally found this wonderful lady named Zoe and uh, her and two other women are going to come on our panel and we are going to talk about, um, uh, it's going to be a platform for them to speak on, on what's going on in their world right now and how uh, being a black woman in aviation is and, um, and what they want to share with us. So can't wait for that. So join us next week. And again, thank you so much for being here, John, and um, we'll stay in touch. Okay. Thanks sure. for the conversation. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye, everybody. <laughs>